I would like to welcome you to IMS and to the opening evening of this uh, seven-day period which we have here together. And in this, the, the opening talk, I would like to explore a little some facets, some features of spiritual life, a life of, which includes awareness and meditation as one of its essential features, and also touch upon as well the days that we have here together to give a general uh, outline of this period of time. And as you know, the working with me are two friends and it's always a, a delight and a privilege really to work with one's friends and Jose has been working with me here in previous visits as well as in uh, England and Germany and Yvonne, it's her first time in the US of A in getting a complete education and <laughs> we hope <laughs> and Yvonne has been uh, assisting me on retreats as well in Spain and and in England and with retreat situation it is uh, an environment in which hopefully everybody who comes to spend some time and days here uh, does so essentially uh, out of one's own intention and motivation to be here because sometimes what we experience in life is that other people are more keen for us to do something in life than what we are. And it does seem to be rather an awful lot of people in the world who think that something we should do something and it would be really good for us to do. It's not only parents who tell us this, of course, uh, but we get it from all sorts of sources. And hopefully everybody who has come here, who is sitting in this hall, yogis, teachers, staff alike, are in this hall because one, as far as one can see and understand, one is here because oneself wishes to be here, that one has made the decision to come. And it's not a kind of uh, submission to the force and the will of other people. Because if it is, it might be a hard road during these next few days. And you might find yourself cursing the persuader. Sometimes people curse themselves for being here, but that's bad enough. <laughs> so in coming into a situation like this, there's, there is also something of a diversity in terms of past experience of being in such a locality. For some of you, 
There are, and I was just having a look at the information sheets before coming into the hall. There are some of you for whom this will be a completely new kind of form to be exposed to. Yet that it will be unusual for you to spend time in association with others with whom you have very little or perhaps no obvious forms of contact, verbal contact, owing to the silence. It would be unusual for you to be in an environment where people seem to spend um, the maximum amount of time the whole day doing as little as possible. This is a very rare situation in our society where the emphasis is on doing as much as possible. And here, doing as little as possible can be such that when you are sitting still and you change the posture, you move your leg out, it can seem to be one of the major events of one's existence. <laughs> so when we speak of doing as little as possible, we mean it in the real literal terms of doing as little as possible. And we have tried in our life again and again to do as much as possible and we see the fruits of it, both personally, socially, environmentally, globally. And now we're saying, okay, let's go, we tried that extreme, let's have a week in our life of going to the other extreme. Let's see for a little while what doing as little bit as possible means. And then perhaps somewhere between the two, we might find what's called the middle way. Coming into a situation like this means as well that each person in, upon arrival here clearly in making steps to come here that we need to remember in life that every step forward we take towards something, towards a situation is simultaneously a step away from. To be here means you've moved away from something else, short term as it might be. Sometimes physically, as is obvious, one moves away from a situation which is familiar and known to you. Unfortunately, we tend in life too much to drag like a heavy shadow in terms of emotional and psychological content what we have just come away from. So physically, we can make the decisions in our life to have and spend some time away from what is known, what is familiar, what we call the everyday. But unfortunately, our inner life doesn't necessarily take any notice whatsoever of what the body is doing. You can be here physically, and that would be obvious and apparent to one and all. Inwardly, you still haven't left the place where you came from. Still unresolved business, still things incomplete, still things to be dwelling upon. And sometimes it seems like the mind and the inner life never seems to quite catch up with the body until the body is under threat. Then there can be a collision in life.
So we're finding out, and we shall be exploring here, whether there is an opportunity for us to find what is harmony of mind and body. Not as a belief system, not as an, a new age ideology, not as some uh, convenience, but what it actually means for the deep welfare and the emancipation of a human being. Can the mind and body, can harmony really be discovered? Can that integration really be found? That the two genuinely are contented bedfellows together, becoming increasingly rare in this world. <clears throat> the long history, of course, of spiritual life, spiritual practice, and the traditions and religion itself. In a way, there is perhaps much of benefit in spiritual practices, of spiritual traditions, and perhaps too even of religion. Though sometimes some of us, and I am one of those, who sometimes feel religion can be a kind of um, those, like one of those things you put on the bed at night when it's cold. What uh, you, you say in the States, a comforter. And sometimes when life is a little bit difficult, we fall back upon a faith, upon a comforter of some form or other. And religious life, religion, sometimes has, understandably, has provided that Eastern religions, Western religions, New Age religions, Old Age religions. And religion too has, uh, for many millions of human beings, a somewhat indispensable place in life. All of that can be useful, can be appropriate. But sometimes too, there is no comfort in the comforters. And sometimes we are rather thrown back or thrown into a state of bare attention to bare existence. And then perhaps a different sense of what religious life is all about might have an opportunity to awaken inside of us that one has in one's bare existence and bare attention no securities to rely upon and fall back upon. That one has been willing to take some risk to sit and to walk and to be and to see and find out what that really means without any comfort zones at all. And perhaps in one of the tradi traditions, not the only one by any means, one of the traditions, the Buddhist tradition, has, to its credit, I feel, has given a lot of support to the exploration of bare existence, bare mindfulness, bare heartfulness, and to see what revelations can come through that 
sometimes that spirit of that the bareness of things has been suffocated and i mean suffocated suffocated with ritual suffocated with ceremony suffocated with uh, forms and rites suffocated with uh, literature and books and has rather brought people out of this bareness of things into all that we might call religion. And to some degree, the value of facilities like IMS is really, though it's not an easy thing, really says, let's discard the ism in Buddhism. Let's, let's, let's dispense with all of that as a distraction and let's just sit and be, walk and be, sit and watch, walk and watch, and let's see what reveals itself in our own nakedness. In our own sense of not knowing what existence is all about. And let's start with that, in a way, quality of innocence and humility. Therefore, we have no ism to rely upon. We don't have much to rely upon at all. We can't rely upon ourselves because ourselves is unreliable. As you will see, the moment you begin to watch the breath, it's a very unreliable adventure watching the breath because the mind isn't very much interested in it. Every sitting is the proof of it. And similarly with the walking, the walking, slow, mindful walking, will appear to be one of the most absurd activities you've ever engaged in in your life. It is. That's why we walk slowly and mindfully. So nothing really of any real assurance and substance to actually rely upon. And let's see what shows itself through the ordinariness of human life experience without a religion. So coming into IMS and spending some uh, days here together is a rather stripped down mode of spirituality. If there was an easier way of going about things, then I would be the first, I must confess, to advocate it. And we could, of course, in the timetable of the day, make the day considerably easier. We could, instead of having breakfast as an example at the wretched hour of seven o'clock in the morning, we could have it at nine o'clock so that people could have a good lie-in in the morning and be prepared for the arduous activity of a 15-minute meditation at 11 o'clock. <laughs> and we could drop the silence so then people could really talk at length to each other and really contribute to thoroughly confusing each other as we have done so successfully for years. And we could have a much shorter day and perhaps even go down to the pizza bar just in case we've done too much 
by doing a second meditation in the afternoon. But whether in the comfort zone of such relaxed informality there, we actually get the opportunity to face our existence. That's what this kind of work and exploration is about. Facing one's existence. Because to face one's existence, in a way, essentially, is to face existence itself. So sometimes it will seem, for those of you who are rather new to situations like this, it will seem to be a little bit like jumping into the, the deep end and the attractions of such things as uh, TM, 20 minutes in the morning and evening, will seem extremely magnetic interest after one day of being in a retreat situation here. But to say the intentions and the purposes are very, very different. So sometimes in entering into and participating in such a, an environment of awareness, silence, stillness and a meditative observation of life, that we bring with us our past, our accumulations, both wholesome and beneficial and worthwhile, as well as the unhealthy and unsatisfactory ones, we bring the whole ballpark into the meditation room, into a facility like this. And we also bring with us, possibly, a range of particular or different intentions. And the tradition has said, rather wisely, that our motivations in life do matter a great deal about the way we live, about our actions, and about the fruits of our actions, are very much tied to the intentions and motivations. We're in deep trouble in life if we lose accessibility and an ongoing familiarity with our intentions and our motivations. They are a vital ingredient and holding power and influencing power of our way of being in the world. What are the intentions and the motivations which influence the actions and the results of actions? And lots of situations, both here and elsewhere, reveal and tell us a lot about ourselves which may not be apparent to other people. Two people can be apparently engaged in a similar action and the intentions are working quite differently. And intentions matter in life. Can there be a certain purity of intention? A certain clearness of intention, a certain wisdom in the intention, a kindness in the intention, a thoughtfulness in our intention. <coughs> Sometimes in a situation like this we come and we perhaps acknowledge with ourselves that there is some stress or 
problem or anxiety or something incomplete in our life and it might be our wish that that is actually resolved in this time here. Hopefully it is. But of course there is no assurance or guarantee of anything no matter what the intention that we bring to it occurs. Sometimes we uh, believe that in our day-to-day -day life there, there are immense dramas which are taking place and then we imagine that when we come into the retreat and the moment we sit down on the floor or sit in a chair then all hell will break loose and we'll have to deal with a load of unresolved stuff to use contemporary buzzwords and we might find that no matter how much we expect what it will be like in being here the actuality can be something quite different one doesn't know and similarly one sitting or one walking period mind can say oh that's how it's going to be in the next sitting I know just how it's going to be by the pleasant and the continuity of it or pain yet again when I come in and sit again when I go and do some walking again or whatever and again life is organic one cannot prophesy with certainty anything as far as content of experience goes so again it requires from us a certain humility and innocence again let's take it one day at a time or in a more refined way let's take each sitting at a time each walking period at a time and see what is revealed through sitting and walking and certainly in spiritual work and bare attention to bare existence it can and does have and contribute to awareness to calmness of being to contentment and clarity it gives support to all of those deep things of life but also it's not enough just to recharge our batteries it's not enough to generate more uh, energy in life it's not enough to be more mindful in life to be more conscious the very heart of these teachings is concerned with the enlightenment of a human being the awakening of the human being salvation, the emancipation and that is consistently at the core of what the teaching is so though one wishes people's anxiety levels to be reduced one wishes health of body, heart and mind to take place and the well-being and contentment within one's existence to take place but they are at best stepping stones emancipation an enlightened being is the vital element everything else is 
not to be compared. So the teachings have said, one generation after another, have stated unashamedly and directly that awakening is incomparable. Incomparable. And this situation here is for awakening. It's incomparable. So as I said, in the whole thread of things, more than two and a half thousand years, of course, the Gautama, the Buddha, freely and effortlessly acknowledged awakenings that took place prior to existence, during his existence, and subsequent to his existence, that in the long history of humankind, the awakenings have and do take place, and the facility here is a significant contribution for that, for all. And with, with that, as I said, sometimes it gets a bit lost and clouded over and obscured by various forms of religiosity. And I say if we can put all of that aside, then we can look just at what is and to see what that means for the earth itself, for humanity, for ourselves. The day itself, the form of the uh, re retreat, is such that we begin six-ish in the morning, sometimes a little earlier, um, but not, we're not as um, desperately keen as our Zen brothers and sisters, who I am told at times get up at some unearthly hour of the morning, about 3.30 in the morning, and I think it, that's for the the hardcore stoic school of meditation. And I hear too that sometimes in Japan they uh, like to sit uh, during the middle of the winter with the windows wide open and watch some different sensations which you and I may not be particularly attracted to. So there are some forms of it in the more uh, tough school, Rinzai being the more, more noticeable, and there are variations of those in the uh, Theravada tradition as well, where I know of Theravada brothers and sisters who will take one hour or two hour determinations not to move even their little finger, and will sit through um, heaven and hell, and mostly the latter, uh, during these two-hour periods. And somewhere, and of course I would have to say this, we're trying to find the middle way between these extremes. Uh, of course I would say that, wouldn't I? And in th that, in the sitting time, in the sitting periods there, the sitting period constitutes that uh, respect for silence and stillness, yet also the wisdom to move and sometimes the wisdom to move in life is a very profound wisdom. So when we are sitting and we are experiencing some 
pain, physical pain, which is arising in different parts of the body. Two, acknowledge that. There will be lots of instructions and ways to work with physical pain that comes. And sometimes, as I say, the wise thing to do is to move. Otherwise, we'll start developing a reputation with ourselves or with others of being a successful macho meditator. And we're not here to cultivate the tradition of Ramboism and more to look at what is skillful, what is wise in the face of pain. Similarly, with the walking period, times of walking, and particularly for those who are much more used to going along at a much faster speed in life, and one is thinking of those who perhaps work in uh, offices or factories or universities or schools or study in them, or going to and from one place to another by foot. It seems a rather peculiar thing in life that uh, if tens of thousands of, of others are going along at, a, at an alarming speed with that obsession or addiction to getting to their destination as quickly as possible, that if countless numbers are doing it, then this is sanity. This is normal. And if somebody is saying, let me explore what it means to walk slowly on the earth and to feel one's existence taking one step at a time, sometimes it's hard to adjust to a different perception of the walking experience. And then we find ourselves becoming rather judgmental. Oh, just a, a bunch of zombies walking slowly up and down. And that judgment of that can inhibit the opportunity. What does it mean to walk slowly on the earth as though one had been handicapped or crippled or was recovering from an injury and had been in hospital? And coming out, one is taking one's first tentative steps of just walking and the appreciation which would be just to walk on the earth. There's something rather precious and available to us if we could turn our attention perhaps for the first time in our life off this fascination with results fascination with destination fascination with getting and achieving what we want and walking experience of just walking on the earth is a contribution to breaking out of the mold of walking just to get somewhere walking to get something for oneself and to see whether the walking event itself has its own fulfillment expresses its own completion and therefore destination is not so relevant as we have been led to believe the destination, the goal, what we're trying to get to is not so relevant not so significant as we have led to, been led to believe. So this is the radical teachings of spirituality. Breaking out of mold for realizations and discovery about life 
in a different dimension altogether. Nothing less but awakening is what we are concerned with. The day itself includes sitting and walking. In the first sitting after breakfast each morning, one of us will speak about the meditations. We certainly hope to give as much uh, instructions and uh, descriptions of meditation methods and techniques and the forms and ways of working with pain, working with tiredness, working with restlessness, working with agitation, working with the range of mind-body states that occur, so that you will feel uh, well informed from one day to the next, and it will be as clear from us as possible, the process from one day to the next. Other aspects of the day also include the regularity of small group meetings which take place with Yvonne, with Jose and myself and with the small group meetings generally lasting for about a 45 minute period usually seven or eight people in a small group and different purposes and intentions are with the small group meetings one of them of course is that if there are any questions which you have about the day, about your experiences, about the meditations, the form, technique, of course, please, please ask us. And also we have the same opportunity to ask you as well. And the other is most of us have this peculiar uh, human uh, uh, idiosyncratic tendency in life that, in other words, that if we hear from other people that their mind is wandering a great deal, their knees are hurting, they can't concentrate, they feel agitated, and we listen to others tell the same thing as we're having, we feel better. So part of it, in the small group situation, is we get some comfort out of hearing other people's difficulties because we feel we're not so isolated. And it's an extraordinary thing about human existence that when we are experiencing some difficulty, conflict, pain, confusion in our life, we get this strange idea, where it comes from we don't know, which says it must be me, it's only me. Everybody else is obviously on the verge of complete enlightenment except me. And the small group will dispel this mythology remarkably quickly. For no other reason it's worth having a small group might be some other reasons too, but we can't think of what they are. <laughs> and also, during the day too, we make times, of course, to meet with you on uh, the one-to-one. -one. We make uh, spaces uh, each day for that. And again, a further opportunity for some access and contact. Another feature of the day, as is taking place at the present time, and that is the evening talk. And the evening talk usually lasts for about a 45-minute period. And in that, the relationship, really, to, of the listener to the speaker and the speaker to the listener is significant. And here, the intention, of 
course, on this case, by my uh, side, is to contribute to wisdom and realization, understanding, right in the very moment of the speaking. However, of course, at times, with speaking, one says things which one perhaps would rather not have said, or in the way that one said it, or the tone that one said something. And those of you, too, who have the dubious privilege of speaking uh, publicly from time to time or regularly will know that once it's out, it's out. And getting it back is sounds incredibly pathetically defensive and rationalizations pour out after one's big regret at what one has just said. And if it's not that, one says something and one just hopes that the room never heard it. And <laughs> but sometimes people are still listening after 20 minutes and it can be very disappointing. So again, with that, when I am speaking, and applies to all of us here in a way, that we listen with a view to that which is useful and which is beneficial and which does contribute to our emancipation is heard. And remember also and equally that between one ear and the other ear there's a, an immense amount of space between the two, much more than we would ever admit to anybody. And sometimes it is important and valuable that when things are heard which are not very useful, unsatisfactory and rather pathetically banal, then to make full use of that space between the ears so that it can pass uninhibited from one ear through and out the other side before the self pops up with alarming speed and forms all sorts of accurate opinions about the speaker. So again, in the listening, the spirit of the listening is not, and uh, speaking is not to convert anybody. I don't like being preached to, and I'm sure others also don't. So it's listening with a view to what's useful. And forget the rest. Don't bother with it. Similarly, when listening inwardly, same principle at work. Listening deeply, what's useful inside of ourselves to listen to. What's useful inside to be connected with and that which is not serving to let it pass through that same space. If we listen fully enough, we'll know exactly what we mean. <coughs> so the day of meditative awarenesses, a day of small groups, one-to-one, uh, -one, a day of uh, the evening talk, and in a way that constitutes the general formations of the day. We could say in people's language, we divide the day up between sitting, walking, mealtimes, talks, etc., through the day. But it's obviously people's language. It's human ways of describing essentially life is undividable. Life is indivisible. The essential nature doesn't know division, doesn't know coming and going, doesn't know birth and death, doesn't know separation. But when we talk, 
when we interpret, when we describe experience, then we'll think of division, separation, dividing the day up. But we're concerned with the way we relate to all of that, but we're essentially concerned with awakening the realization of the indivisible and therefore the end of coming and going a divided life and birth and death. And all of this can be easily, effortlessly, I say, effortlessly discovered in this situation. And once in one of the most famous talks in conclusion here of the Buddha, called the Satipatthan Sutra. Sutra means talk. Sati means awareness. Patan means foundation. So it's the talk on the foundations of awareness. And in giving this talk, of which the Vipassana tradition has been, insight meditation tradition has been largely inspired by this key talk given two and a half thousand years ago. At the very end of the talk, the Buddha makes an interesting comment and a valuable one. He says, what sort of time, he asks, does it need for a person to awaken, to be an awakened human being? He says, seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year. No, one doesn't need that amount of time. Seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month. No, one doesn't need that time. He said, seven days. One needs, doesn't need a week for this realization, for this awakening. So we have a week. <laughs> to put it another way, we have more than enough time for liberation. More than enough time. So let's give care and attention Let's look into things deeply, deeply. Not only for our own transcendent welfare, but also, of course, and equally, for the welfare of all those that we meet and have contact with, for all those that we don't meet and we will never have contact with, yet who are affected by our lives. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. So let us just have five or ten minute meditation together. And with the sitting meditation, initially giving some care and attention to the posture. And if the back is reasonably straight or upright, it doesn't matter at all whether one sits on the floor, uses the cross-legged posture, uses the stool or uses the chair. And we see the variety of sitting forms and in a way that's telling us as much as anything else that the shape 
that the legs are in, in life, has got nothing to do with enlightenment. And sometimes people have got the two confused together, the shape of the legs mattering more than enlightenment. A great pity for the legs. <laughs> so, with the sitting, whether one uses chair or stool or cross-legged, if you're feeling reasonably alert and awake, the eyes can be open or closed, whichever feels appropriate. If you're feeling tired, particularly have the eyes open, of course. Feeling awake, you have the eyes closed. And giving care and attention to here and now, and particularly breathing experience. It doesn't matter at all whether the breath is rough or smooth, shallow or deep, settled or unsettled, regular or irregular. We're concerned with what is, not so much with what we would like it to be like, what it actually is. And to give care and attention to the breath, passing through the nose, going past the throat, going down into the lungs. Sometimes that is evident to us in that there is some expansion of the body particularly of the lungs, of course. When we inhale, feel some expansion of cellular existence. And when we exhale, we feel some contraction. And just to be with that expanding, contracting universe, really. Just to be with that sense of that, just as it appears, as it comes and goes. And the mind wanders and drifts and spaces out and gets in lost and indulging in past events or the potential of future ones, just to notice that and then renew the relationship and the connection with the breathing experience. Being aware of life is breathing. Humanity is a breathing experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.